Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we'll be discussing the rise of the East and what it means for the West with Nigel Holloway, Director for the Americas with The Economist Intelligence Unit. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and we're broadcasting live from Dallas today. Joining us are World Affairs Council members from Texas, Connecticut, Arizona, South Carolina, California, and many other states. Global IQ is another benefit of your council membership. I'd also like to welcome clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank and Passport Max, as well as members of Club Corps. Now remember that you may ask questions throughout the broadcast, so please send them to us through the online forum. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Passport Max, a passport and visa expediting company for your personal and corporate travel needs. For more information on both of our sponsors, please visit TexasCapitalBank.com or PassportMax.com. This program would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist and The Economist Intelligence Unit to participate and lend their expertise. Keep an eye out for an ad featuring Global IQ in next week's edition of The Economist magazine. The Economist Intelligence Unit has generously offered you a discount on the report that we will be discussing today, so please visit www.eiu.com slash thebigtilt for more information. Nigel Holloway joined the Economist Intelligence Unit in April 2004 as Director for the Americas in the Editorial Department of Executive Services. This is his second stint at The Economist, having worked for the newspaper first in London and then in Singapore. Prior to joining The Economist, he was a journalist at the BBC, and in 1997, he was the founding deputy editor of the international edition of Forbes magazine. Nigel joins us from New York. Welcome, Nigel. Thanks for being here. Nigel, are you there? Hello, Nigel. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you now. Can you hear me, Nigel? Yes, you're coming through very loud and clear. Very good. Um, I just wanted to say up, right up front, thank you again for joining us. And to get right into it, as Western economies begin to recover from the Great Recession, Asian economies are outpacing those of the West, and it appears that the gap in the rate of growth will remain wide, if not continue to grow. In fact, your report forecasts that India and China will average GDP increases of 6.8% and 6.5% respectively, compared to that of the United States at 2.5%. Recently, we read that um, uh, the uh, uh, CEO of HSBC, Mike Geoghegan, is moving his uh, uh, office from uh, to Hong Kong from London. Given this and other similar type of trends, your report, The Big Tilt, The Rise of the East, and What It Means for Business seems especially well-timed and essential reading for all of us. Would you take a few moments and share with us more about the genesis and the methodology behind this very valuable paper that you have written? Yes, I'd be delighted to. Uh, it really emerged out of thinking about the financial crash and uh, the, the fact that uh, so many people were really reassessing uh, the foundations of capitalism. And we thought, uh, you know, our take on it would be to look at different aspects of this. And this is the first paper in which we hope will be a series. And this paper really looks at the global economy and some of the changes that uh, are taking place 
um, that people, you know, are probably quite well aware of. You know, they listen to the news and see newspaper reports about the, uh, um, the rise of Asia, particularly China and India, and they are wondering, you know, what does it all mean? And so we thought uh, we would look at that and also look particularly at what the implications are for executives around the world because, um, you know, uh, it's, it's fine to talk in general terms, but it's good to get down to specifics about, you know, how uh, the uh, shift towards Asia affects uh, or should affect corporate strategy. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about the report is you interviewed over a thousand people from um, um, Alvin Toffler, the futurist, to Ravi Kant, the retired managing editor of, uh, or excuse me, director of Tata Motors. How did you select these people and, and did you find them overall willing to, to talk with you? Yes. Um, well, there were two kinds of interviews we did. One was online uh, interviews using a closed-end system of questionnaire, uh, and um, there we, we surveyed over a 1,000 people from... We have a global panel of um, executives around the world who uh, have opted in to take our survey. So that was one kind of interview we did by sending them a questionnaire. And then in addition to that, we did in-depth telephone interviews and a few face-to-face -face interviews with corporate executives um, and uh, leading thinkers who have thought about these issues for a long time. And uh, um, then we put them all together into this report. So you had the in-depth interviews, about 20 of those, with leading thinkers, and then the um, quantitative data gleaned from you know, the uh, online survey. You know, there are many quotes in the study that I've found worth writing down to, re to remember in the future, but one of them that really struck me was uh, the dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore when he said that the simple reason why the rise of Asia is in inevitable is because the last 200 years of world history have been an aberration. Yes, it was quite um, quite provocative, that, and uh, Kishore Mabubani is well known for... Um, uh, his uh, interesting remarks, you know, that really make you think about the issues, which is obviously the reason why uh, we interviewed him. But if you look at the historical and chronological context for this, um, you know, uh, it's true that before the Industrial Revolution, um, uh, Asia did uh, have the largest share of world GDP, according to um, some economic historians who have looked at this, and this was basically due to larger population sizes. Um, you know, the key determinant there is obviously the productivity per person, and uh, the productivity between um, Western and Asian societies was not that different. So if you had a larger population, then you had a bigger share of global output. But then during the Industrial Revolution, you know, Western society uh, saw innovations in economy, politics, and, and culture, enabling it to um, jump ahead. And so for 200 years, uh, you know, the West really dominated the global economy as a result. But then since the 1950s, really after the uh, Second World War, Asia's share of GDP has been growing steadily, 
And, you know, there have been a number of milestones along the way. You know, Japan became the second largest economy in 1970. In, in the 1980s, um, uh, trade across the Pacific exceeded trade uh, across the Atlantic. And in 1993, Asia became the world's largest economic region. So it's been, you know, a steady rise, really, since the 1950s. Interesting. Um, when you look at, say, the last 18 to 24 months, how has what your newspaper often refers to the Great Recession, how has it accelerated the, the tilt towards the East? Well, um, in two ways, really. Firstly, um, uh, the uh, recession has affected Western economies much more uh, strongly than most Asian economies. Um, so, for example, China and uh, India are both expected to grow by about 8% uh, this year, and they had a strong performance in 2009. And, um, so, uh, and this is really because their economies are still, um, to some extent, protected in various ways from the um, uh, uh, financial shocks in, in the West. And in China's case, uh, you know, they have kept the renminbi uh, low, and that's enabled their exports to be very competitive. So, you know, there are a number of reasons. And then in the future, we expect that uh, Western economies, they will recover. You know, the U.S., for example, is uh, in recovery mode now. But it's not likely to um, grow particularly rapidly over the next few years, whereas we predict that, um, you know, Asian economies will continue to, to grow quite strongly over the next decade. And therefore, uh, you know, Asia will, if you like, catch up, in particular China. You, know, you raise an, an interesting point, and you, you mention it throughout, the, throughout your study. In one of your interviewees said, there is no country in Asia that is ideologically driven towards free markets. While aspects of their economies are, are, are free, there still continues to be strong state involvement. Uh, could you make the argument that that's one of the reasons that, say, China has been able to ride through the Great Recession perhaps better than other, uh, say, Western economies? Uh, yes, I would say that. I, I don't think you, would, you could necessarily infer from that that Western economies ought to uh, uh, borrow too heavily from the Chinese playbook because um, uh, it really depends on so many different circumstances and the level of economic development. But certainly, um, uh, you know, if you look at the Asian uh, model of economic develop development and compare it with that of uh, Europe and the U.S. at various stages of economic development, one uh, very strong feature, and this, you know, would include uh, countries such as Japan, South Korea, and so on, um, they have all really um, uh, had much greater state involvement in various ways. Now, of course, in the case of China, um, you know, the, uh, there's one party in power and no sign of a relaxation of its grip on power. And that does make a, a significant difference from a number of other Asian economies, such as India. You know, one thing that I was thinking about is if you were an analyst, either for a, a corporation or for a government, it must be so challenging right now to really consider what China will look like in five or ten years. And it seems like a lot of our analysis has, has been off the mark. Um, J.D. Powers and Associates predicted that China would overtake the U.S. as the world's largest car market in 2025, yet it happened last year. Why do you think we've been so off the mark, if you agree with that, on uh, China's uh, rapid rise? Uh, 
Um, well, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I think, you know, in individual cases, we may have underestimated how rapidly uh, China was going to uh, continue to grow. Um, but actually, uh, you know, the, the, the remarkable thing is, is the steady, the relatively steady rate of growth over the last 30 years, you know, in China. After they opened their economy under Deng Xiaoping in the late 70s, uh, early 80s, they've really grown um, by an average of 8 to 10% a year steadily since then. And um, uh, it's true that individual markets, such as the automotive sector, which is what you, you just mentioned, have uh, streaked ahead faster than many have expected. But overall, um, the rise has been uh, quite, re you know, almost remorseless, leading one to wonder, you know, whether, um, you know, at some point uh, there could be some kind of, uh, you know, financial or economic dislocation because no economy has been able to um, uh, grow uh, steadily at such a rapid rate for uh, several decades uh, uh, on the trot. Could you chart out, say, one or two scenarios that might lead to uh, a financial meltdown? Is probably too strong of a word, but uh, certainly dislocation uh, in China. Well, first of all, let me give you just the, the sort of baseline scenario, um, setting aside, uh, you know, the possibility of a financial crash. Um, the uh, because of the uh, the sheer size of the Chinese economy, and now the you know the relative maturity of it compared to the economy um, compared with previous decades, uh, we do expect to slow down from um, 8 to 10% annual growth to around uh, 6 to 7% annual growth. Um, but that's still obviously a very healthy clip given the, the uh, absolute size of the economy. Now, if there was a financial uh, um, crash of some kind, uh, then, you know, we could expect, um, you know, several, uh, several years of considerably slower growth, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, uh, half that or, or even less, um, you know, if there was a serious uh, financial dislocation. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting talking to analysts in, in China who say that, you know, simply because China has been growing so long, people are sort of accepting the fact that there has to be some kind of um, financial turmoil at some point. Um, and I guess, you know, it's a little bit like an earthquake. The longer there isn't one, the more you expect one. Mm -hmm. You know, if, as we're waiting for some questions to come in, and I'll remind our listeners that they can, as they're in the auditorium now, just fill out the question and we'll do our best to get to all of them. Not all of us are economists or, or economic reporters, and I wondered if you might take a moment and really explain to us the whole concept of PPP or purchasing power parity, because you make quite uh, mention of that quite a bit throughout the report. Yes, we use that for our long-range forecasts, and it is somewhat controversial whether you use uh, purchasing power parity or what are called market exchange rates, because what you're trying to do is compare one economy with another. And one way of doing that, and the way that we uh, believe is the best way to do it in terms of what we're doing, which is comparing the overall size of an economy with another economy, is to adjust it for the cost of living, which is what PPP does. Now, you know, the way to look at that is if you earn, say, $1,000 or, or some, you know, notional amount, and, you know, for you um, in uh, the U.S., say, a Big Mac 
you know, cost uh, $2, then you're less well off than if you're earning the same amount and a Big Mac costs $1.50. I mean, I think people can, can you know, grasp that point. And PPP is really trying to, uh, you know, capture that point. That if you look at it simply in terms of the amount of, of money without thinking of the cost of living, then they may seem on par or whatever it may be. But if you adjust for the cost of living, then, uh, you know, the Chinese definitely will, will seem better off than they do at market exchange rates. And, you know, this is why we believe, you know, according to our forecasts, that uh, the Chinese economy uh, will equal that of the U.S. based on our uh, trend lines uh, in PPP terms in the year 2019, only nine years away. And, of course, that plays a role in when you hear how many millions are part of the middle class or the consumer class, say, in India or China. Yes. That's another feature of it, of course, um, that, uh, you know, um, because the cost of living is, is lower, uh, then, you know, more people have, uh, you know, feel better off and could be considered uh, part of the middle class at a lower income level than they would in, in the U.S. So, for example, in the U.S., it might be, you know, household income of, say, 40,000, 50,000, and in China, it may be half that. I, I have uh, two questions that have just come in. Uh, one of them, Chris from Dallas, asks about the impact of what's going on right now between Google and the government of China. Um, and um, I see another one just came in on, on the same topic as well. Could, could you address that? Sure. I mean, that, it doesn't surprise me that your uh, listeners are, are interested in this. It's a fascinating uh, sort of tussle that's going on with uh, wide-ranging implications. The tussle is really about, you know, the control over the Internet and the fact that uh, Google, uh, for a number of years, accepted the restrictions that China was imposing on its uh, service in China and that it decided, uh, you know, in the past few months, that uh, uh, the censorship was excessive and announced that it was going to pull out and then, you know, it uh, made good on its threat and has moved its service to Hong Kong and uh, where the, um, uh, the censorship is, 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 is considerably less but as a result, China has retaliated by um, shutting off, if you like, um, uh, the access of uh, local Chinese to that service. And um, the U.S. government has made noises about, uh, you know, the restriction of the flow of information. And, you know, what is clear is from a Western perspective, uh, you know, if you look at, say, editorials in the newspapers, the general drumbeat is that uh, this, in the long term, is going to harm China because, uh, you know, it's all very well for China to try and control uh, what goes on within its borders, but the Internet is uh, a, um, a mechanism for the um, delivery of information around the world and that it's uh, next to either next to impossible to control that or if you do that, then you're going to uh, reduce the, ultimately reduce the competitiveness of your economy because uh, um, economies around the world rely increasingly on the free flow of information. Do you think other companies, say, in the U.S. or the U.K. will feel pressure to take some type of action uh, against China on this, or will they sort of stay aside and, and see what happens with, with Google? 
I think very much the latter. I think it all depends on the individual circumstances of, of the individual uh, companies. It will vary uh, by industry and it will vary even within the internet space. Um, you know, Yahoo, for example, you know, obviously has a presence in China. It has a, a joint venture, but it has a much lower profile. And um, so, you know, I think uh, each company will be looking very closely at that, particularly those in the high-tech field, to see how it will affect them. But I think they're all probably taking a wait-and-see attitude. Yeah, I really do want to encourage our audience to consider uh, going to the website, eiu.com uh, forward slash the big tilt. Uh, obviously, I've read the report, and um, it is, has so much really interesting information, and you were kind enough to discount it to $99 for our, our members and other people who are listening. One of the things that came out in this report that really made me think quite a bit was you talked about the national saving rate in China and how it's forecast to be over 50%, uh, 10 times what it is in the United States. How does this really play out in affecting uh, corporate development? Yes, um, it is really remarkable that their savings rate is so high. And what it has really led to in terms of their development is that you know they obviously have a much higher rate of investment than in the U.S., and they need a higher rate of investment in the U.S. in order to build their in infrastructure and their industrial um, power, if you like. And um, so the, the effect of high savings is, firstly, that you tend to have a high uh, rate of investment, but also that um, you tend to waste a lot of the investment, leading to overcapacity uh, or um, uh, poorly installed uh, equipment and uh, and so on. Um, the uh, the other point there is that um, uh, you know if we look at the reasons for the the high rate of investment uh, on the um, household side, it's because uh, families have a very uh, little uh, safety net. You know if they get sick or uh, when they get old, so they have to save very um, uh, very heavily in order to protect themselves. And uh, then on the corporate side, uh, companies have very large savings. In fact, corporate savings in, in China are bigger than household savings. And this is partly to do with the inefficiency of the financial markets. The companies also have to save money for a rainy day. And uh, they don't have the same access to credit markets and uh, uh, have an easy time borrowing unless they're a privileged state-owned company. So if the financial markets become more liberalized, then you can expect to see the savings rate uh, fall. We believe it will fall anyway because the uh, social safety net is growing, income levels are growing, people will feel more secure, and as a result, consumption is likely to rise very rapidly, particularly in the second half of the coming decade. Let's switch for a moment and talk about what may happen uh, on April 15th, whether or not the United States uh, says officially that China is a currency manipulator. Susan Schwab, who was the USTR under the uh, George W. Bush, feels that there's a high possibility that China will be labeled as a manipulator. Uh, do, you, do you think this will happen? Um, well, uh 
I, uh, my guess is actually as good as yours there. I think, you know, what we have to really think about is, um, you know, the political uh, backwash from such a, an official declaration. Because on the one hand, you know, uh, the U.S. is uncomfortably reliant on China to fund its um, government deficit. And, you know, China has in the past made mutterings of the fact that it feels over-dependent on uh, investments in U.S. Treasury bonds. Right. And so they may retaliate by making noises about reducing their holdings on, of, of, of U.S. dollars and U.S. Treasury bonds. That could put pressure on the dollar, uh, which of course um, would in a way uh, affect the rate of the renminbi perhaps, but let's focus on the U.S. dollar. It could lead to a, a fall in the U.S. dollar and a rise in, in U.S. interest rates, uh, which would obviously um, slow down um, the recovery. So these are the sort of things that you know, the government will have to think about. Uh, when it um, uh, makes its determination as to whether the, uh, you know, the um, Chinese renminbi is uh, undervalued. Um, most economists believe that it is heavily undervalued and um, that uh, they, they should revalue it. But there's a tussle going on in China between the ministries that are in favor of uh, helping industry and uh, exports versus, uh, you know, the finance ministry and the People's Bank of China, who are more in favor of a revaluation and a liberalization of the financial markets. If you were a betting man, what would you forecast will happen on, on April 15th? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I think it would probably be 50-50, you know, so I think the sounds like a safe bet. Right <laughs> we, have, we have a question from Don, who happens to be a banker. Will the possible increase in U.S. debt and subsequent drop in dollar value, along with a probable recession, affect China's Asian economies? Yes, because the U.S. is still the world's largest market. And although, it, 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 you know, over the next 10 years, we will see much, uh, a, a rapid growth of intra-Asian trade, uh, you know, whenever uh, the U.S. economy, if the U.S. economy were to grow more slowly or to go back into recession, then that would affect uh, U.S. appetite for imports from Asia and uh, would lead to a slowdown in Asia. So, you know, we're all interconnected, which is, um, you know, makes uh, answering your earlier question about predicting, uh, you know, um, how the, uh, the U.S. Um, administration will uh, declare regarding uh, the renminbi such a problematic uh, issue. Mm -hmm. uh, Keith from Dallas asks, what percentage of GDP is China planning to invest in building their military capabilities? Uh, he mentions that there is a significant spending is projected for building the, the naval fleet. Yes, that's true. Um, the U the China is engaged in uh, you, what you may call uh, military build-up and certainly a military modernization. Um, the Chinese military, uh, you know, from a historical perspective, was basically uh, a very, very large um, uh, land-based uh, army, you know, relying on uh, the size of its population. And uh, over the last 20 years, it's been engaged in, you know, a, a modernization. But one thing you have to um, put in perspective is that China's military spending is tiny in relation to the U.S. 
the US spends more on defense than every other country put together, including China. So yes, it's true that China is engaged in, for example, modernizing its naval fleet, um, its aircraft, its uh, missile capability, uh, and it wants that to, um, to uh, rattle sabers uh, over Taiwan and to intimidate Taiwan and also to instill respect of its neighboring countries and, of course, uh, the U.S. as well. But, uh, you know, its forced deployment is still uh, primarily regional. Uh, its, its economic power, though, is, is uh, much more global now. You know, it has a bigger uh, investment um, and economic presence in Africa, Latin America, the Middle East. And, you know, one can assume that, you know, in the very long term, the next 20 years, that, uh, you know, that China will want to deploy both diplomatic and military means to protect its interests around the world. And then isn't it true, too, that China's spending a, a great, greater amount of money on just domestic security? It spends heavily on that. And, of course, that's, uh, you know, it's hard to get the numbers there um, and how you count that. Um, you know, uh, the figure I was giving you, you know, as a, as a very small share of, China, of the U.S. defense spending is pure military spending. But as you say, there are a number of uh, security agencies in China which would not be included in that. And there is a very, very significant security presence, uh, you know, throughout China, particularly in restive regions such as Tibet and Xinjiang. You know, again, one of the things that, in, in my view, makes this report so valuable is all the appendices and uh, graphs and statistics that are just through, throughout the report. Um, one of them is, in the next decade, which obstacles will hamper China's and India's economic growth prospects the most? And that ties into a question from Craig. He says, is corruption in China sufficiently endemic and increasing to significantly hurt Chinese long-term competitiveness in the future? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, certainly, uh, corruption is, is endemic in China, and it's endemic because of the nature of the political and economic system that, you know, the uh, state and uh, at various uh, levels, um, national, provincial, local, has such a, a, an important role in the economy and so, uh, you know, uh, you hear numerous accounts of um, uh, Chinese corruption and the occasional uh, execution of, you know, uh, prominent officials uh, for corruption as a way of encouraging others to not to do so. But, of course, the incentives are so great because of the, the power of uh, public officials in the economy is so great. Uh, there are very, you know, at the same time, there are strong uh, liberalizing elements, uh, you know, within the government in uh, Beijing uh, who would like to uh, free up the economy. And definitely, if you look at the way that uh, the broad economic policy has gone in China over the last 20 years, there has indeed been a gradual liberalization. But this has not really led to any tremendous reduction in corruption because the, uh, the, the size of the economic pie has grown and therefore, you know, the appetite, if you like, of public officials has grown along with it. 
Mark uh, asks, and, and along the same lines, how valid is the financial accounting integrity of the balance sheets and income statements of, of Chinese companies? Well, that's another good question. Um, uh, my, my own view is that they're becoming increasingly um, valid um, because uh, as foreign investors are taking a closer look at uh, the corporate scene there and the ability to invest in uh, Chinese secure corporate securities grows, and I see that uh, as a very strong trend over the next 10 years, um, the level of um, disclosure is going to grow along with it. So I see that as a very positive factor. You know, if you look at, for example, uh, recruitment of accountants, you know, and training of accountants and uh, people in modern, you know, t who are schooled in modern business methodology, if I can put it that way, not just accounting, uh, but management uh, thinking and so on, you know, the, the cadre of homegrown managers and uh, accountants and so on is growing, is growing quite rapidly. Um, whether that's rapidly enough in relation to the rapidity of uh, economic development is another matter. Mm -hmm. Now, the survey respondents said the weak rule of law is China's top impediment to economic growth. And, of course, that ties in with intellectual rights and patent protection, property rights. Um, are you seeing progress there? And, and, and what is leading towards any type of uh, amelioration of the, the, the worries people have always had about doing business with China and intellectual property? Yeah. Um, well, focus on the word property for a moment and think about how, um, you know, Chinese entrepreneurs and companies are investing heavily in innovation. Now, a lot of it is really stealing from other countries, perhaps. But there's also a big focus on developing uh, the property, the intellectual property themselves. And as that happens, as uh, Chinese companies, um, you know, develop uh, more of their own intellectual um, property within, uh, you know, the products and services they develop, they will develop a much greater stake in protecting their property. And so the balance between uh, the poacher and the gamekeeper of intellectual property will tilt at some point in favor of gamekeeper. The same thing happened in the US in the 19th century, that they were a net importer of technology by fair means or foul. And uh, they reached the point where they had so much uh, intellectual property to protect they became a, a gamekeeper. And, you know, I would predict the same thing will happen in China. But, you know, it, that doesn't detract from the point, you know, that the survey makes that, you know, of roughly two-thirds of, of people say that the weak rule of law, including intellectual property, is a major concern. Mm -hmm. Well, it's lunchtime for a lot of our listeners, so let's talk for a moment about the less sweet Oreo cookie or McDonald's <laughs> in India <laughs> about how companies localize. Right. Um, well, the one you were mentioning there um, uh, is, uh, you know, in, 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 in places like India, uh, the makers of Oreo and McDonald's, too, have really adapted their, um, their staple fare for local tastes. And, you know, in the case of India, you know, they, they actually prefer, you know, Western-style cookies with less sugar in them. So, you know, that's quite a simple example of how they, they adapt their product to, uh, you know, to local tastes. 
you know, McDonald's, uh, you know, has lower price points in China, you know, to compensate for the fact that there's lower purchasing power. But, you know, um, there are many other examples, too, of how Western companies have adapted their uh, product range and the price points for, for local tastes. I mean, another example, I think, is, uh, you know, the um, uh, maker of mobile phones, Nokia of Finland, that has, you know, a half a share of the Indian um, market for cell phones because it's adapted its um, uh, mobile phones for, for local needs. They, you know, the basic model has a flashlight, which you know Indians find very useful, you know, in power blackouts or poorly lit uh, streets, you know, to find their way around. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are classic examples of how Western companies are adapting their um, products to local tastes, and I predict that that trend will, will accelerate over the next 10 years as the um, affluence of Asians grow and, uh, you know, it's, there's a greater incentive on Western companies to, um, you know, to find uh, the sweet spot, um, to go back to the Oreo cookie, the sweet spot uh, in consumer tastes that they can really uh, appeal to. I was in India last month, and I was struck in looking at some of the stores how the packaging, say, for shampoo or uh, soap uh, was much smaller, and, of course, that made it very cheap. I mean, it was a, a few pennies, a few rupees. Right. In, in India, because incomes are so low, uh, you know, uh, for large numbers of people, um, you know, they can only afford to buy enough shampoo for one, uh, one go. And, uh, you know, uh, Hindustan Lever, you know, the, the Indian um, uh, component of the Unilever global empire has been uh, very well known in kind of uh, uh, dividing, you know, um, uh, soap and shampoo into these uh, easily digestible uh, pieces uh, for a much lower income bracket. But then, you know, say something like medical equipment. If you're manufacturing an MRI um, machine, how does GE adjust how it's marketed and built in India or China versus, say, the Mayo Clinic? Well, that's that's a, a very good question because you would have thought the same lead degree of complexity goes into an MRI machine in Asia compared with one in um, in in the West. But actually, uh, you know, there are lots of bells and whistles you know, on uh, complex machines that, uh, you know, can be um, taken out to simplify it for uh, local um, use. And, you know, you, you may know that that kind of sophisticated equipment is actually uh, sold very widely in, in Asia uh, and uh, has enabled um, uh, mothers, expectant mothers, to uh, learn the, um, the the gender of their uh, you know fetuses um, because they're very con you know concerned about having uh, male progeny. Mm -hmm. So these are very popular machines in in Asia. I did not know that. Very interesting. You know, one of the things that we, we see all the time when we're looking at China is will the domestic market grow enough to handle the decrease in consumption in the West and particularly the United States? Um, how did your forecast look at growth in consumption in uh, China and India? That's uh, among, you know, the biggest questions because it leads to the whole question then of the structural imbalances between the West and, and Asia. 
because if China can consume more and save less, then uh, you know the likelihood is that it will uh, import more or uh, sell more uh, that, uh, that it produces domestically in the domestic market, thereby leading to uh, reduced um, imbalances. You know, because the U.S., for example, has a massive uh, trade imbalance with China, and other parts of the world do too, because China's consumption is, is relatively low. Um, as I mentioned before, we believe that uh, you know the um, Chinese consumption will grow rapidly um, as a share of GDP, um, and that uh, you know this indeed will lead to uh, an, unwind an unwinding. But it's going to take you know about 10 years before um, you know we see levels of like uh, 50 or 52 percent, as we're guessing, for uh, consumption as a share of GDP. But you know, an easier uh, number to remember that a number of our analysts came up with is that we, you can expect to see a billion, that's a thousand million middle-class consumers in Asia over the next 10 years. And with those type of numbers, obviously a lot of people listening are thinking about whether or not they should be uh, initiating, establishing businesses in Asia, or if they already are, what can they do better? And that was one of your questions. Do you feel, as you know, the per person you were interviewing in their C-suite, are they prepared for the tilt of the East? And what did you find? Yes, I think that was one of the main findings was that uh, we asked these thousand executives, uh, you know, whether, first of all, whether they believed that the global recession has accelerated the shift of economic activity to Asia. And two-thirds of them said that they did believe this to be the case. But... Only a fifth uh, say that their companies are well prepared. So uh, this seemed to us to be a major learning point for companies that um, you know they may think they're well prepared, but maybe they should examine their strategy and look carefully at the steps that they're taking to take advantage of the opportunities uh, that you know if they're Western, you know, because our audience here is in the U.S of the opportunities in Asia and also to protect them, uh, you know, uh, uh, themselves from uh, a likely onslaught of Asian um, uh, producers uh, moving into uh, the U.S., as I think we're going to see, you know, across the spectrum of different uh, industries and markets. And, and several people talked a lot about cultural challenges. The fact that uh, Western executives really don't understand the culture that they're working with when engaged in business in Asia. And vice versa. Um, what we found was that cultural differences are actually the biggest challenge to doing business globally. Um, and we feel that that's going to be a key competitive differentiator over the next 10 years. As uh, products become more commoditized, um, you know, and uh, as cultural differences play such a big role, companies that can overcome cultural differences in different ways will be at a, an advantage relative to other companies that, that don't. Now, um, uh, you know, that's the sort of thing that people have been saying for a long while, but I think it's really going to uh, come to the fore more. Uh, that the, really the most successful companies we're going to see around the world are going to be truly global companies, of which there really are only a handful, if any, right now. Could you give an example of what you think is a really successful global company, whether in the West or in Asia? 
Well, to be honest with you, there are, there is no, let me define, first of all, you have to define what a global company is and uh, contrast it with a multinational uh, or other, you know, terms that are used quite widely and, and obviously, you know, do, are highly descriptive of the reality. But, you know, a global company would be one that would probably operate with more than one headquarter. It may um, have one in uh, the West and one in Asia, for example. It will have a, an executive suite and a board uh, um, members that uh, you know, more accurately reflect the fact that it sells products around the world. Uh, it will be listed on uh, stock exchanges in the East and, and the West, and uh, it will be um, uh, tapping into a global talent pool and innovating around the world. You know, if you define global that way, you know, there really aren't any companies that are in that category yet. Uh, but there are, you know, a number of multinationals uh, who sell uh, their products in, you know, 200 countries, uh, which means that they, you know, have an understanding of how markets are working and have operations, uh, you know, however tenuous. And, um, you know, companies like uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, GE, um, you know, City, uh, Citigroup, uh, HSBC, um, you know, there are a number of companies that are sort of, you know, evolving in that direction. And I think there are also some, you know, um, in, in Asia that will be moving in that direction as well. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, um, for example, among the non-resident Indians, uh, Mittal Steel is, you know, the world's largest steel maker. Uh, this is uh, an Indian who is settled in, in the UK, but, you know, clearly with a, you know, a cultural background and uh, probably has helped him to build a global steel business. So, you know, I, I would expect uh, to see more... Um, globalization within companies and uh, more Asian companies, uh, you know, emerging as, as multinationals. Should companies put more reliance, say, on local hires? Should executives travel more to those countries? And what are some of the steps that a company should take right now to accelerate the process to become more of a global company? Well, I think those are two, two that you've touched on are, are extremely important. Uh, in terms of uh, local hires, really to think of the world as a one big talent pool and really uh, um, understand the local labor markets to find the sort of skills that you need. Now, you know, one of the um, sort of cliches almost is, you know, about the number of engineers and other uh, professionals who are turned out by universities in Asia. And mm -hmm. then when you look more closely, you see that actually a lot of them are really not yet um, employable because, you know, they have perhaps a superficial understanding of how, um, you know, modern economies work. You know, they've learnt by rote and they're not able to think for themselves and, uh, you know, so it's considerably smaller number that are uh, of the right calibre. But even if it's a smaller number, you know, you can still find, uh, you would still be able to find, you know, good people. But as you can imagine, it's hard enough to find good people in your local market. 
in order to be able to find good people in other other markets, you obviously have to have you know boots on the ground and uh, your eyes and ears open to really understand you know which are the good universities, how to hire people, what the cultural mores are about hiring, uh, and and so on. Now you also mentioned about executives traveling. Yes, they it, not just a matter of going for a visit or visiting more frequently or spending more time, but actually living in the region, um, getting to know, you know, the local um, people, particularly if you're a C-level a, a executive, your counterparts in the region, so you can pick up the phone, uh, you know, and you can't really do that uh, if you only uh, jet in and out for a short stay, you, you know, you have to live there. So that's going to put a lot of, a big toll on the lifestyles of corporate executives in the, fu in the future, I'm, I'm afraid to say, because, you know, they're going to be expected to live uh, around the world, you know, for, you know, two, three, four years. And um, uh, really, in order to understand, you know, the markets that they're working in. Right. And the typical rotation, at least for U.S. companies, is maybe three years at the maximum. Yes, even less, probably. I mean, the stereotype has always been uh, the West innovates and Asia produces, and I, I guess what you're suggesting is that that's slowly changing. Yes. I think, you know, what we're going to see is that Asian companies are going to become more like Western companies, and to a certain extent, Western companies are going to become more like Asian companies. Now, you know, for Asian companies, that means uh, becoming more innovative and learning how to innovate um, rather than merely producing uh, components. Now, if you're in a supply chain producing components, you actually learn about innovation through the other uh, companies in the supply chain, particularly, um, you know, if you're an auto maker, an auto assembler in, uh, you know, the US, uh, Japan, or Europe, you're working on innovations and then uh, transferring those ideas to your suppliers, but in the future those suppliers will become auto-assemblers and have to innovate in their own right. So, you know, it's a kind of uh, synergistic, sort of organic um, uh, trend that's going to go on where um, I think Asian companies will, you know, learn that if they're going to compete, uh, they're going to have to do more innovation themselves rather than buying or, or borrowing or stealing it from other, other companies. Uh, I want to thank Craig for listening, and, and Craig has a question. Which economy allocates capital more effectively, or excuse me, more efficiently, India or China? Um, right now, I would say India. Um, India, uh, you know, is now growing. Uh, here's a rough rule of thumb. India and China's rate of economic growth is going to be roughly the same over the next 10 years. Currently it's 8%, but it's going to, it's going to uh, be about, uh, you know, around 6 or 7% if you take an annual average. Uh, India's rate of investment and savings is a good deal lower than China. I don't know offhand what it is, but it's making its uh, savings and investment work harder than uh, China's to produce the same uh, uh, rate of growth. So I would have to say that uh, India is more um, efficient capital market, but even saying that, it's still less efficient um, you know, than uh, financial markets uh, in the West. 
you know, we can grow by 2 or 3% with a savings rate, you know, far lower than, um, you know, in India or China? This, this is an interesting question because English is always you know, viewed as the language of business. And Steve asks, does this mean that business people in the West will have to put more emphasis on Asian languages to compete um, uh, effectively? Uh, definitely, definitely. You know, and they will have to learn, um, you know, more of them will have to learn Mandarin in particular, I would suggest. But by the same token, um, what we found, you know, in our research was that Asians uh, have significant language problems in the West. You know, some will have a command of English, and certainly, you know, the Indian middle class is obviously uh, at a competitive advantage in that regard. But when it comes to, say, European languages, so such as Spanish, uh, French, and German, you know, they, they face significant handicaps. So, uh, you know... Um, uh, I would say that uh, language learning, if you, for example, if you wanted to get into a growth business, then uh, designing language products for um, Asians and uh, for um, Western executives would be a you know, good business to get into. And, and this is a follow-on question from Murphy, and I don't know anything about Murphy's background, but what would you recommend to professional looking to gain multinational experience? We've already identified languages and travel, um, but if you were someone, say, starting out in your career, what would be the best thing to do? Well, the first thing, apart from reading The Economist, I would Absolutely, say... and, and subscribing to this report. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you, for, thank you for the plug, Jim. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, to travel, uh, for example, uh, take an extended vacation if you can afford it in Asia, if you're a Westerner, and, uh, you know, vice versa. And, uh, you know, get to know, um, you know, a country a little bit by, um, uh, you know, smelling it <laughs> and eating the food and talking to local people. And uh, often it would be better to do that on a shoestring budget than on, uh, you know, a budget that would in, in, enable you to afford to stay at the Hilton or the Ritz-Carlton because you're going to learn a lot more about a local country if you backpack and, and take the bus <laughs> than if you uh, jet around and, you know, you're looking down on, on the people from, you know, the uh, porthole of your plane. Well said. And, of course, I have to give a plug for the World Affairs Councils of America, uh, 90 organizations throughout the United States. What better way to learn than to be a member of the World Affairs Council? I want to be sure we have a, enough time to, to talk about this. And you, you, you spoke quite a bit about acquisitions and mergers and how that is changing. And all of us will remember what happened when China's national oil company sought to acquire Chevron a number of years ago. And, of course, there's been lots of acquisitions since then. But how do you see that balance changing? over the course of the next few years? Well, um, we asked uh, the uh, survey respondents and 90% of them said that they thought there would be a big rise in Asian companies buying Western ones and only 40% saw the other way around. So there's going to be a significant shift there. And part of it is because, as I mentioned before, uh, Asian companies have a lot of savings and uh, as they become bolder, you know, they're going to deploy those savings by buying uh, Western companies. Now, um, you know, I'm very much in favor of uh, foreign investment, and uh, unless there's a, uh, you know, a very 
narrowly and clearly defined security risk, uh, I would um, I'm in favour of um, you know uh, um, companies in one region buying companies in, in another. And of course, if um, if a Chinese company want, wants to buy you know uh, say an energy company in the U.S., I would also want uh, you know a U.S. energy company be to be just as free. Uh, to buy, you know, an oil or whatever energy company in China. Now, um, you know, the reality is that politics intrudes both in China and in the U.S. But, you know, I would imagine that, you know, um, uh, uh, both sides will become more adept at managing these issues and preventing them from blowing up into, you know, political uh, issues. But it's going to be, you know... Um, uh, sort of a hit and miss affair, you know, one will get through and one will not, uh, you know, um, as time goes on. But, you know, certainly uh, a focus should be on pressuring China to opening up its financial markets and uh, making it easier for foreign companies to buy Chinese companies. Do you see specific sectors where there may be uh, more potential than others? Well, um, you know, the first sector that China is focusing on, uh, understandably, is uh, natural resources, in particular oil. Um, and, you know, the way that it wishes to control its energy security is by uh, taking significant uh, stakes uh, either in, on the ground, you know, under the ground, uh, or in buying companies that have stakes, uh, you know, under the ground. So. Uh, I, I see that uh, trend uh, developing, and that will obviously be the case for India as well. Um, another um, theme I think you'll see is Chinese companies and Indian or Asian companies buying uh, Western companies for their intellectual property. So in other words, rather than stealing it, uh, as in the past, actually acquiring a company that has the, the, the intellectual wherewithal that they need to compete. Now, the difficulty there is to that the intellectual property tends to reside in people's brains and you know they may vote with their feet and leave that company if they're not happy about uh, the new owners so i think you know asian companies will learn to be more adept in managing the uh, the fallout from um, you know announced uh, mergers and acquisitions and they will have to if they're going to avoid you know a backlash Nigel, I want to thank you so much, uh, first, for participating and joining us today, and, and also to, to you and your colleagues for writing really a fascinating report. I, I want to stress to our audience that I, I read this report last week. It, it took about two, two, three hours to really go through it, um, but you will find so much valuable information, and, and the Economist Intelligence Unit has kindly made discounted it to $99, down from $150 for our listeners, whether you're live today or listening to the podcast. And uh, I just really do encourage you to take the opportunity to download this. It is a report that you will want to keep on your shelf and refer to it frequently. Uh, you can access that report by going to www.eiu.com forward slash the big tilt. Uh, again, Nigel, thanks for being with us today. Thank and if you you're so not, much. It was a pleasure to be with you. 
And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, you can change that today by going to Economist.com to start your discounted subscription if you happen to be a member of one of the World Affairs Councils. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Passport Max. Stay tuned for more information from your councils regarding our next audio cast in April. And remember, together The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.